Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Celluloid Junkies. I'm joined here by my empathetic co-host Luke Kane, and do we ever need some empathy today? How are you, Luke? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good too. Thank you. It's 1983, and we're surrounded by 1,000 homeless children and teenagers who have turned to drugs and prostitution just so they can afford to eat. Welcome to Seattle, the most livable city in America. This is the scene of Martin Bell's 1984 documentary, Streetwise. People get killed down here, they go to jail down here, everything happens down here, and none of it's good. I haven't seen nobody get killed. He got the shit kicked out of him because he pulled a big old steak knife out on him. You missed that one, dear, but that was just this morning. I miss my mom and dad. They're part of my past now. Just a phase she's going through right now. There's nothing for me in this world for strangers. Your health, fortune. Someone else's idea. I've had chlamydia, trichomonas, and gonorrhea. I don't belong here. I'm a woman, yeah. Open up like one. I'm gonna get you for that. I'm standing there for you. <laughs> that hurts, huh? Yeah. I just said, Mom, I gotta go, and I hung up on her. It looks like her job's broke. They didn't care enough to keep me. Why should I care enough to find out who they are? Yeah. 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 Look at your eyes for a second. Chris, just leave me alone. What you gonna do about it? If you cannot huh? be true. The whole situation, You're everybody's scamming. Yeah. <laughs> so have you decided? Do you want to date tonight? Tell all the others. Hi. 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 And I hope you have fun with your stupid ass husband. My wishes would be to have a small family. You've got a chance to make it a good way. That was happy. So who cares? I don't really care. Whatever happens, happens. When Cheryl McCall submitted her story for Life magazine on homeless children in Seattle in 1983, even she didn't expect that it would lead her to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, site of the 1985 Academy Awards. An already accomplished reporter for People magazine, McCall had previously studied and written about convicted murderer and capital punishment volunteer Gary Gilmore, serial killer Ted Bundy, and Klaus von Bülow, he of the crime of the century. But she wasn't just a crime writer, she also profiled and, in the process, befriended poet Maya Angelou, authors Mario Puzo and Kurt Vonnegut, former tennis world number one Billie Jean King, 
and actor and musician Chris Christopherson. King and another of McCall's subjects, musician Willie Nelson, would eventually fund development of the documentary Streetwise. Her activism during the 1960s and 70s led to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover labelling her a threat to national security, a letter to the effect she kept proudly until her death. In 1972, dismayed after the election of Richard Nixon, she left the United States to travel around Europe, which is where she began her journalism career. The Life magazine article, titled Streets of the Lost, Runaway Kids Eke Out a Mean Life in Seattle, detailed the plight of many of the children who would later be profiled in Streetwise, including Rat and Tiny. McCall and photographer Mary Ellen Mark hit the streets of Seattle to document the growing problem with youth homelessness and how those children turned into criminals just to ensure their day-to-day survival. Mark had been a noted photographer for 20 years already, graduating from the University of Pennsylvania with a master's in photojournalism. She would earn an honorary mention at the 1984 Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Awards for her work with McCall, and later in life was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award in Photography by George Eastman House and inducted into the International Photography Hall of Fame. Her life on the film set was prolific too, having been the unit photographer on films such as Arthur Penn's Alice's Restaurant, Catch-22 and Carnal Knowledge by Mike Nichols, and Francis Ford Coppola's war epic Apocalypse Now. For Look magazine, she shot Federico Fellini's filmmaking process during Satyricon in 1969. Seattle's youth homelessness was merely a microcosm of a bigger problem across America, but it was definitely an area that had been hit hard over the course of the preceding decade. In addition to the ongoing recession caused by oil disputes, rising inflation, rising interest rates and out-of-control unemployment at the start of Ronald Reagan's presidency, the state of Washington had been decimated in the early 1970s by the collapse of Boeing, the biggest airline manufacturer on the planet, which happened to have its home base in this state's largest city. Unemployment across the nation was at 4.5% in 1971, but in Washington, it rose to 13.8%. It's not difficult to see where the issue of homelessness in Seattle began then. Many youth were stuck in homes with long-term unemployed parents still reeling from the loss of industry 10 years prior. Rates of divorce, domestic and sexual abuse, drug use, alcoholism and violent crime shot up, and real estate prices went down as families tried their hardest to relocate. As House Subcommittee on Human Resources Director Gordon Rayleigh said at the time, some of these kids are running for damn good reasons. The most logical option they have is to get out of there. The economy has had a tremendous impact. There are a hell of a lot of kids literally kicked out and thrown away. By 1983, when McCall and Mark hit the streets, there are approximately 1,000 of these full-time homeless children and teenagers in Seattle, among some 6,000 runaways reported in the city each year. Shockingly, that represented just 0.6% of all 11 to 17-year-old runaways in the country. Each year across the United States, 5,000 unidentified teenagers were ending up dead, buried in unmarked graves, and the fate of a further 50,000 was unknown. But despite all of this, Seattle was renowned as the most livable city in the country, a title it had won during the 1970s and was still being awarded at the start of the 1980s. As Real Change News noted, Beginning with a 1975 feature in Harper's Magazine, the city had garnered high-profile attention as a paragon of new American urbanism, awash with well-educated middle-class professionals luxuriating in clean, human-scale neighbourhoods and a beautiful natural environment. A stark contrast to terminal urban crises elsewhere in the United States, like Detroit, New York or Los Angeles. As is often the case, 
homelessness was an example of out of sight, out of mind. Production on Streetwise began on Labor Day of 1983. For non-Americans, that's in September. And continued for 56 days. Director Martin Bell, who was married to photographer Mary Ellen, had previously shot television documentaries on Dustin Hoffman and James Cagney, but was otherwise an unknown commodity. Thanks to McCall and Mark's Peace for Life magazine, the filmmakers were given largely unrestricted access to their subjects. They went back to the same youth, Tiny, Rat, Dwayne and others, who had been profiled previously in print. As the budget was minimal, the decision was made to record interviews only via audio, thereby not wasting any precious and expensive rolls of film. Shot on 16mm with an Araflex camera, the documentary is made without talking heads, interviewees being interviewed on screen, and instead is narrated almost solely by the subjects themselves through voiceover. It creates a hauntingly realistic narrative wherein the audience is taken along for the ride, not just told about it after the fact. Despite this lean use of film, over 50 hours of footage was shot entirely in natural light. This was meticulously pieced together by editor Nancy Baker, a noted editor who had previously worked on Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA, which we previously profiled on this podcast, would later work with Bell again on his feature film American Heart in 1992, and would also cut Palme d'Or winner Louis Mal's 1994 film Vanya on 42nd Street. Her sound design in particular is quite stunning given the technical and budgetary restraints. The death of Dwayne happened after initial editing was completed on the film, during the audio mixing. But it was so important to the narrative, so tragic, and yet leaving it out would have done a disservice to the person, that more footage was shot, including of the funeral. This was edited into the documentary and served as the film's climax. Streetwise was released on October 26, 1984, and garnered exceptional reviews. Its stark depiction of an underreported, often ignored social issue brought light to youth homelessness, but unfortunately there were several factors working against the film's success. It was a low-budget documentary, shot on 16mm, and projected in the Academy aspect ratio, which isn't optimal for cinemas. Its audience was therefore limited. Luckily, Streetwise had its champions, including critic giants such as Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, and since its release has had a long underground life being regarded as one of the best documentaries ever made. Criterion has now released the definitive version of the film, remastered in high definition and with a myriad of special features on Blu-ray and DVD. It comes packaged with Martin Bell's 2016 Kickstarter-funded follow-up documentary Tiny, The Life of Aaron Blackwell, as well as the original Life magazine article in full. Seattle residents, on the other hand, were not quite as fond of the portrayal of their city. The film was met in its hometown with dismissal, almost outright denial of the severity of the issue. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer ran the headline, Life and Seattle Runaways, is it really that bad? Some accused the youth portrayed in Streetwise as actively turning down spots in youth hostels and homeless shelters in order to star in the documentary. The previously mentioned newspaper's film critic called Streetwise as pointless as a trip to a terminal cancer ward. The Seattle Police Department in 1986, as part of their video magazine series of training videos, produced a music video called Under the Viaduct, which actively mocked the city's homeless population and their heavy-handed treatment by law enforcement. Unfortunately, it's now 37 years later, and homelessness remains a problem in Seattle and Washington State in general. The state ranks fifth worst among all U.S. states in number of homeless people, behind only California, New York, Florida, and Texas, all states with triple the population. 
Seattle ranks third worst in the country when looking at just metro areas. On June 27th of this year, the Seattle Times noted that there were 22,923 homeless people in Washington, although these point-in-time counts are routinely criticised as severely underrepresenting not only the problem as a whole, but the youth problem specifically. In late 2016, the Seattle Public Library ran an exhibition, Streetwise Revisited, a 30-year journey, to commemorate the film and bring awareness, again, to the growing issue. Luke, when did you first see Streetwise and how impactful was it for you? I saw it about 15 years ago, you showed it to me, and uh, it was enormously powerful, had a massive impact on me, and then I hadn't seen it again until uh, a couple weeks ago when we gearing up for this show and it was just as impactful isn't it one of those movies that you say you haven't seen it again in all of that time and i too have not seen it i've seen parts of it in between but it's also one of those documentaries that you just don't forget it's one of those films that you don't need to see every year you need to see at least once in your life and if you see it once in your life you will remember it it hits you with a completely foreign and frightening version of what human life is for some people and the disparity of it you compare obviously our advantages and our life and what how how we measure the worth of our lives and then we see these other people and their lives they're at such a disadvantage their lifespan is so much smaller and um there's so many more risk factors there and it's just um extremely humbling i don't know that there's a another film that's hit me in the same way as this film I would just also say about the film, I think a lot of people would probably be turned off by the subject matter because it is very heavy. You know, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of horror, there's a lot of grief in the film. But watching it a second time, I was really struck by all of the joy in the film and the vitality of the kids and their enthusiasm for their lives and their quirks. And it captures all the kind of little cute human moments, the way that they front and then we see that front break and they're suddenly kids again. There's lots of laughs as well, lots of outrageous moments. There's an old Chinese proverb about a lotus that springs from the mud. And I guess, especially on this watch, I noticed the lotus more than I noticed the mud. And it reminded me about something George Lucas, I read that he said once, um, which is that you can divide movies into two groups. Those made by directors who love people and those made by directors who don't. And Streetwise is a movie that loves, loves its people. Excuse me, sir. Can you spare some change so me and my brother can get something to eat? Where's your brother? Right there. He's spare, he spare change in two so we can get some food. That's for you. How you See, doing? This is for your brother. Thank right, you very thank much. You, sir. Rat. His panhandling techniques is a little on the rusty side. So got to take a lesson from me. But me and him can make some good money. We did once or twice. The other thing is I think the film reads better today than it probably did in 1984, and I think that's because the social consciousness has, ra- has been raised since that time. I think we finally caught up to the sensibilities of these filmmakers. I would agree with you there that we are more sensitive to these issues. We are more caring. We do understand that when we walk past somebody on the street who's begging for change that you can't give change to, that it probably affects them rather than that they're a nuisance. But that also made it especially shocking to me that the homeless situation in Seattle is just as bad now as it was then. Yeah. You know, there, there is a tendency in these sorts of social consciousness type movies or, or documentaries for people to say, well, go and get a job. 
and of course, that's a massive check your privilege response to this film. And I think more people are aware of that now, that that isn't an appropriate response, that it um, is ignorant of a lot of the conditions that these people were raised in, the disadvantages uh, that, that they have. Uh, would you say that um, Streetwise is your uh, main best documentary? <laughs> I would say it's my main best documentary. I can't really think of one that I would say is better or even as good. I think I've said it before on this podcast, probably when we did Harlan County, USA, but Streetwise is my favourite documentary or my main best. It has a power that I just haven't experienced with any other documentary. And I, I guess that's noteworthy because there are very powerful documentaries out there uh and, and a lot of documentaries do things differently than streetwise i really admire the way that streetwise creates its world I, I do enjoy soft films and i would say that streetwise is a soft documentary and i don't mean that it doesn't have any impact what i mean is it lets it play out naturally and it doesn't shy away from mental health issues especially regarding the suicide of Dwayne. I mean, I was so affected by this film when I first watched it that I used one of the songs from this movie in a video that I put together for the funeral of one of my family members. And that was Tom Waits' Take Care of All of My Children, which plays over the film's end credits. And um, it was written for this film at the request of the filmmakers. And years, years after watching this film, that song and this film had such an emotional impact for me still that it became important for me to use that song in the video. And those emotions and feelings and vulnerabilities of the kids that you're talking about, they're not just there, they're not just up for grabs. They're not there immediately. These kids are all about putting up a tough exterior and they're fronting. And, you know, it's all like Rat, he talks a big game. It's all about women and bro code and getting high. And they're not, they're not victims. They don't see themselves as victims. I don't like Sacramento. I live right on the outside of Sacramento. I went then some faggot was trying to pick me up by Robin for $150. Really? Yep. Take his car too? Hell no, I hitchhike. No, you're right. They don't see themselves as victims, but you make do with the situation that you have in life, don't you? Yeah. I mean, if you've never known anything different, then, then you make do with what you've got. These kids were actually seeing themselves as less victims being out on the street taking control of their own lives than they were if they just sat at home. Yeah, it's actually very interesting, some of the ideas around freedom in this film, because there's a bit of a contradiction in the way the kids equate street life with freedom and the price they pay for that freedom. You know, initially we see them doing their own thing, they're their own boss, setting their own schedule, it's great. But as the movie goes along, we see that they're at the mercy of the weather, of police, of Johns, of pimps, of hustlers, the pecking order of, of this, you know, street community. So it's a form of freedom that's very conditional. They need to sort of play a part to survive. They need to put up that front. And I think the suppression of self is, is antithetical to all of the values of freedom. And, you know, we see these kids essentially mimicking the adults that they've known in their lives, you know, when they're, when they're talking. And it's in the moments when that facade drops and their vulnerability comes out that we get to the heart of what makes this such a compelling record. The divide between who they actually are and who they pretend to be. I would hate to dismiss the contribution of any one of the three key players in Streetwise's production. So I just want to say up front, before we get too deep into this documentary, that Cheryl McCall, Mary Ellen Mark, and Martin Bell were all integral in its development. 
But I do think that McCall and Mark were the driving forces behind getting the access to the children in Streetwise through their Life magazine work, and especially in earning their trust at such an early age. Uh, from what I have come to understand, a lot of this legwork happened before Martin Bell was involved. In an interview with Dazed magazine in 2012, Martin Bell gave credit to Mary Ellen and Cheryl for getting the access to the street kids. He said, To get access, that is the most difficult thing. That is a challenge, and it's a skill. Cheryl was great at it. Mary Ellen was great at it. They were able to get through doors that normally you wouldn't be able to get through. I want to talk a little bit about one of those three people, because I've done a lot of reading, and I think that Cheryl McCall is a fascinating person. Um, For those who don't know, she died of cancer in 2005. I went over a little bit of her life in the introduction, and you can see that she had some amazing connections and experiences, and really tried not to focus on kind of rehashing celebrity puff pieces in her journalism. In fact, she hated Reggie Jackson, the baseballer. She wrote about how much she hated him, how vain he was. So she wasn't there just to give someone unfettered kind of love. She was as interested in hanging out with sports people, actors and writers as she was with criminals on death row or humanitarians working in Ethiopia or, of course, children from broken homes. True crime is now such a big industry, but in her time it was still a niche. She wasn't getting exposure from her stories on those people, nor was she getting it from articles like Streets of the Lost. She earned it through the writing itself, which contains an equal mix of empathy and understanding along with matter-of-factness. In 1983, McCall wrote about her behind-the-scenes experience of working with Mary Ellen Mark to write the Life magazine article. I dream of street kids every night, gang wars and violence mostly, and wake up every morning with thoughts of them first. It will be a long time before I can put this experience and story behind me. I was so involved, so consumed, and so exhausted. For three weeks, we were following as many as 52 characters, as well as trying to touch base with all the various officials, shelters, missions, and clinics that the story required. I have good, tragic interviews, and Mary Ellen has strong photos. Anger, hurt, loneliness, vulnerability, and other emotions. Fights, shooting up, tiny at home, at the clinic, on the streets. Mike and Rat dumpster diving, panhandling, doing their laundry. They've edited 100 good photos so far. Now that her job is done, mine begins. Frankly, I'm overwhelmed and a bit frightened by the task ahead. I don't know how to do justice to the story. Where will I find the words? Her birthday came during the time that her and uh, Mary Ellen were in Seattle doing their research for the original life story. And she wrote about that experience too. My 33rd birthday was one I'll not soon forget. The street kids had a party for me on the street with streamers, balloons and a huge cake. It was emblazoned with wall slogans like eat shit and die, fuck you and die, sex, drugs and rock and roll and so forth. A memorable cake and a memorable occasion. I think it's clear from these writings that McCall gained the trust of these kids quickly. They liked her. Even in Streetwise, we see a scene in which Rat tells Tiny, his girlfriend, that he'll be leaving town on Sunday. She gets out of juvie on Monday, but he can't wait the extra day. None of the other kids attend Dwayne's funeral. But they all threw a party for McCall. At some point after the production of Streetwise ended and before the film was released, McCall had a falling out with Mary Ellen Mark and Martin Bell. Or at least, Martin Bell. Even saying that she hated Martin uh, when recalling the surprises she'd experienced in 1983. I couldn't find any information as to why this falling out happened, but I did find out that the film's production money was originally put up by Arthur Cohn, a producer who had won Best Documentary Oscars for Sky Above and Mud Below in 1961 and would win again for American Dream in 1990 and One Day in September in 1999. 
At some point, Cone was pressuring McCall to dump her boyfriend of the time, David, and making inappropriate advances towards her. He tied his funding of the film to her dumping David. When Willie Nelson learned about this, he put up another $150,000 to rid the production of Cone's influence. I'm not sure why she fell out with Martin Bell, but maybe the two things are related because that seems to be the big issue for McCall during the production. So he was holding the financial backing of the movie against her to try to coerce her into being in a relationship with him. From what I understand, yes. Jesus Christ, okay. Either way, the empathy and understanding that McCall and Mark first showed the Seattle Street Kids helped infinitely with the later production. The film crew was able to shoot day in, day out from a distance as an independent observer. They were able to shoot up close and personal too. They were able to be included in private visits. Dwayne to the doctor, Tiny to the sexual health clinic, Dwayne to visit his father in prison. And they were able to make their most important stylistic decision, which was to show only real footage instead of talking heads, while still getting interviews with each of their subjects that were later utilised as voiceovers driving the loose narrative. Something striking about the film is how intimate all of these things feel. It was actually the impact of the work she did on Streets of the Lost, Streetwise, and soon after that enabled McCall to make a life change. At the start of 1985, she wrote about World Vision, Save the Children, and Medicine Sans Frontiers, MSF, known in English as Doctors Without Borders, humanitarian work in Ethiopia, visiting the country with Mary Ellen Mark, and closely chronicling the plight of malnourished adults and children, particularly the children, and the severe effects of third world poverty. It was an intense experience we shared, probably the most intense of our lives. The old and more experienced I've become as a journalist, the more professional distance I have between me and my subjects, usually. But this story has put me back at square one, too involved to just walk away. I've seriously thought, at night in my sleeping bag, about joining MSF as a logistician. Who knows, maybe this too will pass. It didn't pass, though. She went to the University of California at Berkeley and graduated in 1989 with a degree in law. She set up an office in Nevada that represented children caught up in custody disputes. Later on, she started a chapter of the court-appointed Special Advocates, CASA, program, which volunteers on behalf of abused and neglected children. She spent the rest of her life heavily involved in these causes, often working pro bono. That McCall was so affected by the work she'd done with children on Streets of the Lost and in Ethiopia that she changed her vocation is testament to how much she cared. All that most of these kids in Streetwise wanted was for somebody to care. We see time and time again in the film a young street kid talking about how their parents don't care about them, about how their mother shacked up with a man who abused them emotionally, physically or sexually and therefore they had to move out because their mum wouldn't kick him out instead. Or we even see the parents in jail, such as in Dwayne's case, where it's physically impossible for them to provide care for their child. McCall and Mark showed they cared and that's why they were so fondly embraced. They weren't exploitative. If they were, they wouldn't have met up with Tiny to go to the Academy Awards in 1985. They wouldn't have hosted screenings of the film in Seattle for all of the kids to attend in 1984. They wouldn't have continued their relationships with the children throughout their careers, as seen in Tiny, The Life of Erin Blackwell, and in other short features produced in the almost 40 years since the film's release. It's clear that they were loved just as much as they loved these kids. And it's that feeling that makes Streetwise so special. These are street kids, and this is their life. No judgments allowed. So if any of our listeners know why Martin Bell and Cheryl McCall fell out, can you please reach out to us? Because I would <laughs> love to know. I would love to know as well. Mm. But I found her fascinating, Cheryl McCall. And I think that she's probably the least understood member of the 
uh, trio that was involved with, uh, I guess, getting Streetwise up and running. A lot of the information that I gathered here actually came from Cheryl McCall's daughter, Jessie McCall, who did a lot of research later in life uh, following the passing of her mother. And she's got a great website, a great series of articles on Pilgrim magazine called Felicity Buckwinder, which was a pen name that Cheryl McCall used when she was a journalist in the 70s. And there's just so many great photos. There's some behind-the-scenes streetwise photos, and there's writings from uh, Cheryl McCall at the time of those photos up there. So a lot of this information came from there, uh, and uh, definitely worth checking out for fans of the movies. What religion are you? I'm Pentecostal. You're Pentecostal? Okay, that's what I was raised as, a Pentecostal, but I don't believe that shit. You want to know how they're working us? Just how they're working us. This is the first time they I always, ever got on the street. Remember once a year in school when they tell you, bring your canned goods and give them to us? Yeah. That's what they're doing. They say, bring your canned goods and give them to us. Then they turn around and give them back to you. And then they say, we're doing something, yeah. we're doing something for y'all. You know, give us some money. Yeah. We're doing something for y'all. That's how they're working us, man. I could stand out here and I could say, yes, Lord, thank you, Jesus, give me a dollar. You know, I can do that. Well, you could. Yeah, yeah. right, I could, you know, and probably get a dollar. It's your privilege. You know, but see, man, see, all this is nothing, man. But I'm not standing you know? here for me. See, you would Who be standing, standing there for you. For? I'm standing there for you. You're standing here for me. That's right. Ain't that nothing? Because you might be you hungry this winter. Dime. We're wise out here, man. We're street wise well, because you, you know what? The you whole know, the whole situation. You and everybody's I gonna, scamming. You and I are gonna scamming. have to sit down and talk about yeah, this. Brother, we maybe can do that maybe too. you can wise me up a little bit. Yeah, because you need a lot of wising because you're not. <laughs> Streetwise is, is not a political film. I mean, there's politics in it, obviously. There's, you know, it looks at social dislocation, prostitution and drug addiction and all of that stuff. But really, all of that's sort of just a backdrop for these kids who, who are so much more sophisticated than most kids their age, by necessity, right? But who are, who are completely ill-equipped to, to deal with the, the violent and unstable environment that they're in. Did you look much into Cheryl McCall or Mary Ellen Marks' work? I know you've seen Mary Ellen Marks' photos before. I read a lot about Mary Ellen Mark, and most of the interviews that are available are of Martin Bell. So I watched a few of those. There's one Cheryl McCall interview on YouTube that was done at the time of the release of Streetwise, which is really interesting. With Stephen Schaefer? Uh, I'm not sure, but she talks about um, being held up in a car at gunpoint by one of the pimps in the movie. That's right, yeah. The portrayal of some of these street kids as pimp, particularly Shadow, who they called a popcorn pimp because I think he was 16 or 17 years old at the time of filming. Again, this is just another example of children mimicking adults and what they've seen. I think even, I'm not sure if it's in the film or if it's in something i watched since, but one of them says that, you know, Shadow wasn't a good... Was this in Tiny, The Life of Aaron Blackwell, that Shadow wasn't a good pimp? I think I think she came out with that later at some point. She said he wasn't cut out for it. Yeah, and they said, you know, pimps are usually uh, they're usually black and they're usually driving their Cadillacs, and you know, those those are just classic movie and TV portrayals of pimps. Yeah, <laughs> but the kids make do. Lulu should have been the pimp. She was the strongest one on the street. Lulu's my favorite character. Right. I ain't putting on a dress for nobody. I haven't done it since I was sixteen. I've had my nose broke five times. And I've had both sets of my eye bones on top and bottom broke. I've had my jaw cracked three times. I'll tell people now, they can beat the shit out of me. They're not getting me away from down here. 
And actually, she's the reason Streetwise happened because uh, it was her friendship. She was sort of a leader on the streets. And you can kind of see that. She's like this avenging angel, right? She's got this street code that she enforces. Um, and she does it in a kind of fire and brimstone kind of way. It's very Old Testament. She sort of stands there. She's also magnificently beautiful. Got an amazing face, an amazing presence. You know, she she and Tiny and Rat, I think, are the three, uh, and Dwayne, are the four characters that really shine. But um, Shadow, his language is interesting when he's trying to just, de- describe who he is and he says I'm not a boyfriend I'm a playboy boyfriend is the wrong word I think what he's trying to say is I'm not a pimp I'm a playboy it's also uh, tiny saying that she goes on dates well no you you are a prostitute you're soliciting so you know there are all these sort of um softened words to sort of um, cut out the, the horrors of their lives. And Cheryl McCall actually says that in that interview with Stephen Schaefer about, specifically about the word dates. And she said, they're not like any dates I've ever been on. There's a shot in there <clears throat> in the film of Shadow and there's a shot of him laughing at something on the street and then quickly he stops laughing. And it's almost a defensive manoeuvre. It's almost like his real reaction has been awakened when he laughs and then suddenly he realises, no, I'm a pimp. Yes. I I can't act like this. There's a moment where Tiny and Rat see a fight break out on the street and they get all giddy the way kids do when they see something. And, you know, you can see that they're all excited. They're jumping up and down in their chair and they're like clapping their hands together. And they've forgotten that they have to act like tough hoods on the street. They're suddenly just their age. They're just themselves. But those moments are fleeting and they have to disappear. And most of the movie shows the repression of self. The other thing that I found quite shocking is that because the film has this mix of really intimate personal moments where you're right up front and centre with a particular character while they talk to somebody else and of wide shots, that there are wide shots of some of these Johns picking up the girls. And I found that particularly shocking. Yeah, and in some of those shots, you can really see their face. And I was like, did they get... Oh, absolutely you can. Did they get waivers signed? Or did, they, did these men know? Were the, were the laws different when this film was made? I don't know. Well, because, I mean, legally, when you film something that's in a public space, you have free reign. Oh. If you have somebody who is talking to the camera, then they become somebody that needs to sign a waiver. Needs to, needs to sign a clearance so that they can appear in a movie. Um, and they did confirm that all of the people who speak on camera signed waivers to appear in the movie. Uh, And I assume that that would have been pretty easy for them to get these waivers in most circumstances because these kids, they don't know any better. They don't know their rights. They don't know necessarily what they could bargain for if they were in a position like Tiny or Rat or Dwayne. I think most filmmakers are not bold enough to linger on images and moments that are out of context that don't necessarily drive the narrative forward. And there are lots of bits and pieces of out of context dialogue, conversation and behaviour in this movie that really gives us a a real feeling of the flavor of the the Seattle streets at this time. Um, I think some people have the gift of seeing beauty in the mundane and then translating that onto film. And Martin Bell in this film certainly has that gift. Yeah, there are some, just some beautiful shots. And I mean, look, probably my favorite part of editing in this movie is is the opening of the film with Rat. He looks at the camera and he looks so young and so innocent and you just want to take him 
under your wing and say everything's going to be okay. That's the feeling you get from that first shot. And then that voiceover where he says the only bad thing is that he's coming back down to the fucking world as he jumps off into the water. And it's it's such a juxtaposition of these images that kind of signify and show freedom and the kind of childhood risk-taking. I mean, not many adults jump off of piers, but, you know, that kind of childhood risk-taking, that feeling of invincibility, coupled with these really adult words. And, and it's what makes so much of this film really special, is that kind of dichotomy of what is childhood, what is adulthood, why are these children living an adult life? Well, what's interesting about that in, that, those initial words is that they actually struck me initially as sort of almost that kind of melodrama that comes with adolescence as sort of a nihilism, right? Nihilistic point of view. But then, of course, once we see his world after that, then, we, then, then it seems less like melodrama and more like a cry. You think about what Rat does on a daily basis in this movie – the majority of his film is begging for money, is is begging for food, is is making prank calls so that he can eat when they chuck out pizza, is going to a, a regular bin and eating chicken off the bone that's in a bin bag that's probably got juices all through it and just those horrible things that you find in bins. And you really understand why when somebody's jumping in the air and jumping into the ocean and doing all those things that on a summer day when you go down to the beach and you see kids that age doing and you realise, hey, this is what this is the lives that kids should be leading. Yeah, and especially because rats' um, methodology for living on the street is tame mm. compared to the way that we see people like the street couple or tiny surviving. What they give, they have to give a lot more than rat does. Rat's fairly moderate. Well, rat is resourceful. Well, I think they all are, but, um, you know, the way that they choose to live, obviously Tiny's making a lot more money than Rat. Yeah. But she's giving a lot more. The reason I say that Rat's resourceful is because he's, um, throughout his very young life, he's picked up so many different ways of doing things. And I think one example that they talk about is catching the trains. I would have never even thought about catching a train except for Jack. He showed me the ways of the trains, how they run, where they go. And Jack taught us you can tell the main track because it sets highest. They got it like a gravel mound and it will set higher than all the rest of the track. And then you just look north and that's toward the north yard and then you just count three tracks over to your right. And you know, we just jump on a train and be on our way. He's very resourceful in the way that he gets around, the way that he doesn't need money to eat, to travel. And there's a lot of ideas about what it means to live on the street. And perhaps the most important one that Rat mentions is that you've got to be partnered up. The reason he learned about the trains is because one of his friends taught him how to do it. He lives with somebody and he panhandles with somebody. And he understands that a necessary part of survival is, is uh, bonding and having, having people around you. When he finally leaves after that kind of heartbreaking scene with Tiny when she's in juvenile detention... He gets on a train. Mm. He hitchhikes a, a ride on a train. And, you know, if you've been listening, you know that this is this is Rat leaving Seattle. Let's also make it known that none of the parents of the street kids we see in Streetwise are affluent. Tiny's mother, Dwayne's father and Shelley's mother are all living close to or below the poverty line. Tiny and Shelley's mother 
somewhat rely on men to keep a roof over their heads to have any kind of stability in their own lives, let alone the lives of their children. I talked about it a little bit in the introduction to this episode, but it's worth repeating. Times were tough in America for low-income earners in the early 1980s. There was rising inflation, there was rising interest rates at the start of Ronald Reagan's presidency, which two of the biggest causes of unemployment and poverty in low-income areas. Money doesn't stretch as far. Suddenly mortgage payments are higher, which drives rents higher, which makes housing less affordable. Access to money from banks is more difficult. Around this time, oil prices also went up drastically. It cost more to keep a car on the road. Less people were able to afford to run a car, which meant access to work was more difficult if their work was far away from their home. They were earning less money because there were less protections for workers in the 1980s than there are now, and there still aren't enough now. Then, specific to Washington State, the collapse of Boeing, which we also talked about, caused an entire generation of underemployed or unemployed, uneducated workers. As I said before, while unemployment across the nation was at 4.5% in 1971, in Washington State it rose to 13.8%. That is more than triple. These unemployed people in 1971 were, at the time, parents to two, three and four-year-old children who were later portrayed in Streetwise. Tiny was born in 1969, Rat and Dwayne in about 1967. They were victims of the economic downturn and it's likely their lives weren't financially comfortable even before that. The parents, economically, were definitely victims of the system. Nobody chooses to live in poverty or close to it. We all have greater aspirations. But there exists a school of thought that says that people shouldn't have kids that they're either unwilling or unable to take care of, that sacrifices need to be made at every level to provide for your children. There are some examples in Streetwise in which the sacrifices just aren't being made. Shelley's mother, for instance, is adamant that she has done enough for Shelley by telling her stepfather to stop sexually abusing her. But she remains with him, in a relationship, and therefore Shelley sees no way to live in their house. Dwayne's father, likewise, has made bad, criminal choices that have landed him in prison. His actions are difficult to justify. How much do you think that the parents in Streetwise are responsible for the situation that the street kids, their own kids, find themselves in? And how much do you think that the parents in Streetwise are victims of the same system that has cast their own kids onto the street? Well, before I answer that, just to sort of go back to what you're talking about, the unemployment rate spiking in the... 1970s. Yeah, with the collapse of Boeing, uh, that at the moment with COVID, the unemployment rates actually spiked again Mm. there and everywhere and is worse so that we can expect to see (laughs) all of this stuff with Streetwise happening again in a few years. Look, it's it's a complicated question. The film is very non-judgmental. And it does show, I mean, Shelley's mum and I think Dwayne's dad come across worse than Tiny's mum. I agree with you. Tiny's mum, we get a little bit more, she's not so one-dimensional. We get a, we get other sides to her. We see how the two of them can be good and connected and friendly. You know, the scene where they're, where they're deciding what makeup Tiny's going to get, things like that. You shouldn't have kids if you can't afford to look after them, if you can't give them a proper life. That's just something I personally believe in. I mean, you know, I I uh, have at different times in my life thought that I wanted kids, but I would not have them now because I'm not in any kind of financial position to to support one child, um, let alone several. But Luke, we're making such a killing from this podcast. Dwayne's dad obviously knows he's on camera and there's this pathetic attempt on his part to father Dwayne in that scene um, with a lecture that that is just just awkward. So typically people who live in poverty in third world countries have more children 
than people who are not living in poverty in first and second world countries. Uh, and part of the reason that they do this is because the more children they have, the more chance that one of their children will complete school and be able to lift the rest of the family out of poverty. This is just something that's happened throughout many, 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 many generations of humanity. It's, it's a known fact. We're talking here about people who don't have access to running water. They don't have access to clean water in third world countries. We're not necessarily talking about the same people that are living in Seattle and are in, uh, by choice, relationships which are detrimental to their children. Do you think it's potentially another middle class privilege to say that these people shouldn't have children? Well, I'm middle class and I'm saying I shouldn't have children. I, I guess it, it is because what I'm saying is you need to have a certain amount of money and a certain amount of stability, financial security before you have a child. I think that the reason a lot of these people have children is because they don't use protection and because uh, it, it, it's not a belief of abortion isn't an option. It's not a belief of theirs. I mean, Tiny, it's one of the first things we find out about Tiny is that she carries that belief. And ultimately, you know, Tiny had 10 children uh, that she can't support and that the state is supporting those kids. You wonder where at the age of 13, Tiny got that. Did she get that belief from her mother? But her mother only seems to have one child. Yeah, or at least that's all, all that we're shown. Maybe it is a bit of a privileged position, but I, I really don't think it does have to do with class or anything. I think it's just a, a fundamental difference of opinion. I, I just don't think that anybody should have kids if they can't look after them for exactly what this film shows us. You know, what happens to children who are unsupported and how heartbreaking it is. We're not, we're not made aware of the financial situation, uh, the marital situation of any of these uh, parents at the start of the 1970s. We're only aware of their situation now. Yeah. Potentially they were victims of this economic downturn, which was particularly bad. When you've got one in six people in Seattle who were losing their jobs at the start of the 1970s when these kids would have been two or three or four years old, potentially these parents were victims of that. And it's hard to recover from that once you get into it. And we know Tiny's mum was a victim. I mean, we know that there's domestic violence in her life. We know that she's got alcohol dependency issues. We know that she's working as a waitress on minimum wage, which was nothing. I mean, her she is so impressed when she finds out what Tiny's earning for hooking. When Erin first told me about this, she thought I would be really angry with her and hate her. But I don't. You gonna need some money for the weekend? Yeah. It's yeah, just a phase she's going through right now. You know, I can't stop her from doing this because she's just going to do it anyways. What's the most touching moment in Streetwise for you? The most devastating is the is Dwayne's funeral when we see that nobody's there except the social workers who failed to ultimately help him and his father who's there with prison guards because he's obviously on you know day release for the funeral. So he's serving 30 years for arson and robbery. Uh, Dwayne is, is the most haunting character in the story. You know, Rat puts up a big front and actually enjoys his life. Yeah. Dwayne puts up the same kind of front. Often you can't really tell the difference between the two of them, but he's covering fear. And um, we find that out when the suicide happens. We don't find it out before then because his veneer doesn't crack. But my most touching scene is actually the scene where Rat says goodbye to Tiny. And I think it's, it's what gets us there that I find touching because Tiny starts in the wrong scene which is in a sexual health clinic listing off all the STDs she's had. You know, this scene belongs to a woman in her late 20s, in her 30s, does not 
sit right that it's a 14-year-old girl. And then the last scene, we see the innocence of adolescence because she's saying goodbye to a boy she's got a crush on and suddenly she's in the right scene. I would agree with you. I think the most harrowing moment is the suicide of Dwayne. I think the majority of people who see the film would probably agree with us both there. It's the emotional payoff to the first 90 minutes. It shows that this lifestyle is real, Mm. that living life at the edges in this constant state of desperation with few or no positive influences has significant consequences. At one point, it it makes me think that at one point in the film, Tiny's mother describes uh, her working as a prostitute, Tiny working as a prostitute, as a phase that she's going through. And I don't think she realises, and it's perhaps through an inability to understand that Tiny is often, at times, as close to death as Dwayne while she's living on the streets. That's not to say that she would commit suicide, but rather that the influences putting her on the streets in the first place have greater power than even she, Tiny, realises. And many of them are dangerous. Um, Violence is shown to be a way of life. Depression isn't necessarily discussed openly in the movie, but it's evident. I had forgotten watching this movie this time, that the film made the decision to show Dwayne, now deceased, in the casket. And that is a heavy visual. And I spent the rest of my evening after watching Streetwise in a complete funk. It's something that doesn't leave you quickly. Uh, Which is the film's intention, I've got to say. It's one of the most difficult shots I've ever looked at in a film. Yeah, well, a few things with what you just said. I think it's interesting that you said that the mother doesn't really seem to grasp the level of danger that Tiny's in or the, the sort of the risk group she's in. And yet there is a moment where she says, I just worry that one day she's not going to be there. Mm. It's there, but it's sort of a bit of a kind of back end thought. You know, I don't know that it's fully, she's fully appreciated what she says in that moment. Seeing Dwayne in the coffin, you know, he's just so stiff and chalky and... uh and, you know, we've seen this boy full of vitality with these gorgeous eyes. He, he, he really is the most beautiful looking kid. So is Tiny, so is Rat, and so is um, Lulu. In fact, they're all kind of beautiful in their own way. Even um, Shadow is just so handsome and gorgeous and just starting out, you know. So to see, see him dead in that coffin, it really is just sort of the punctuation mark for this film. I think Dwayne starts off the movie as you start to think of him as a bit of a brat, especially compared to what you're seeing with Rat and Tiny. I think it's a necessary trait to have when your life consists of panhandling, dumpster diving, sleeping rough. You need to be able to shake it off, so to speak. So there's going to be a lot of adversity coming your way, including nights where you don't eat, lectures from people walking past who won't give you that change and think that you ought to be doing better things with your life. Illness, depression, violent encounters, among other things. So you develop this shield, and Dwayne's brattiness is his shield. Uh, He's almost unlikable to begin with, especially compared to, as I say, Rat and Tiny, who evoke a little bit more sympathy because they seem more real. But then we get a couple of scenes in the movie which really show us Dwayne with his defences down. The first of those is, for me, when he visits the doctor, and he's told the reasons why he might be so small. He's 15, he's much thinner, he's much shorter than some of the other street kids. His face looks childlike, which of course it is, but more so than his friends. He's dwarfed in size when he's sitting on a bench next to his girlfriend at the time. This isn't the typical male-female visual dynamic. But he's open with the doctor, he tells him that he might have worms. He He says it's impossible for him to put on weight even though he eats all the time. 
the second scene is when he visits his father in prison, of course, and he has a real conversation with him for what must be the first time in months, if not years. He talks to his dad, too, about why he's so small, and he says to his dad, can you say hello to one of my friends who shares the same cell? It's soon after this, the film then shows us Dwayne in detention himself, and I believe one of the other street kids is trying to adopt Dwayne or, or let him live with her. And soon after that, it tells us that he's killed himself, and we learn that his brattiness was bravado. It's this combination of sequences which makes Dwayne's death for me, so impactful. Without those further scenes in which Dwayne's persona is softened, I don't think it would have resonated quite as much, but the filmmakers, Martin Bell and the editor, made these decisions which increased its emotional power, like, tenfold. The dad's tears are especially interesting because it isn't as simple as a father grieving the loss of his son. It's a father grieving the missed opportunity to be a father. I, I found out in the morning that uh, there had been a, a suicide. Uh, I didn't know who it was, and I didn't, I didn't think of Dwayne, even though I knew that he was in that institution. Dwayne um, hung himself. The, the one thing that Dwayne wanted was, was a family, and uh, he wanted to grow up as a, what he saw as just a regular kid. I think that he sort of had that dream of uh, a mother and a father and a house in the country and, you know, maybe a horse or a bicycle to ride on. He just wanted what every kid has a right to have, I think. The kids in this movie died of all kinds of things, of, of um, assaults, of uh, AIDS, uh, of drug overdoses. The outcome for Dwayne could have been any of their outcomes and, and in some cases, you know, was. Uh, I also love the shot of Tiny in her mother's cafe with her feet kicked up on the bar stool. Um, we see how kind of similar these two people are. And her mother is still alive, still kicking. Maybe she's not happy. Maybe that's no life to live. But she's conquered the odds and she can still laugh with her daughter. That shot lasts for about two seconds. We also watched as part of this episode Tiny, The Life of Aaron Blackwell, which was a 2016 Kickstarter-funded movie, a follow-up specifically about Tiny. Uh, directed by Martin Bell. Does this add to the story and the legacy of Streetwise? Does it change anything for you as a viewer? No. Uh, it, it was a terrible movie. It's not properly organised. We don't get to know anybody. The relationships are all one-dimensional. Um, there are these phony voiceovers, which are you know clearly scripted and so antithetical to the ethos of how Streetwise was put together. There's a ton of filler footage. It is a plod to get through this movie. You know, the first film had a lot of disconnected snippets of behaviours and conversations, but they were anchored by these long scenes with passages of dialogue in which the characters developed and they slowly became revealed to us. There's, I, I doubt if there's a scene in this movie that lasts longer than 10 seconds. Every time I thought it, it, it was about to get interesting, it cut away. I mean, like, for instance, the scene with the judge, uh, you know, and, and her son, they don't even tell us what the outcome of that was. They just show the judge kind of doing a Judge Judy bit, and then it cuts to something else. Uh, I think that all it does for Streetwise is subtracts from it, because it demystifies Tiny. You know, she was this like dazzling, mysterious creature in Streetwise. who had this light that kind of beamed out of her. And here she's just despondent. 
She's checked out most of the time because she's on methadone. She can barely hold a conversation. I mean, this is not riveting filmmaking. This is this is a bad movie, and it clearly suffered without the um the the influence of of McCall and Bell. Look, I agree with you. I think I said to the you it should have been a half hour supplement on the Blu-ray release. I think if the film had not glossed over Tiny's children one by one, not really getting to know anything real about them, but instead had focused on a couple of them. And there were there were a couple of prime candidates. The 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 main one for me was Tiny's oldest daughter, who is trying to forge a relationship with her mother. In much the same way that you understand that Tiny would have benefited from that kind of relationship with her own mother in her childhood. And so it's kind of like the mistakes of the past repeating themselves. And so there was there was a real uh, narrative that could have been gleaned from the footage that they got that unfortunately they didn't go for. And I agree with you. This seemed to be like a series of vignettes of Tiny's naps. And, you know, her kids are gorgeous and really interesting. And she's her, her situation is very severe. I mean, apparently they photographed this woman over 30 years. This is what they came up with. I almost feel like it's spineless. Like they could have gone there. They probably had the stuff to go there. But because Martin had built up such a relationship with her at that point with um, with Tiny, he obviously didn't want to expose her too much. And so this is what we get. We basically get this itemized list of the mundane events of this woman's life over the last 30 years with a bunch of incidental characters comment making comments on it. And if you juxtapose that with uh, the streetwise revisited story on Rat, which is uplifting, which shows that there is a future for these kids. As somebody who's uh, thought about these kids often, since originally seeing Streetwise, seeing somebody now who was such an integral part of that movie thriving was so heartening. Tell us how uh, Streetwise was received. Well, you stole half of the stuff that I did for the release and reception, so I'm going to have to like... I tried not to do any quotes. I did one. You did one. You did plenty, mate. I like. I literally am going to have to like self-edit as I as I go through this. Okay. Well, ed- well, edit me. I don't need to be here. You could have done this on your own, mate, and I could have just you know edited it and listened. <laughs> First screening of Streetwise was actually in a drop-in center in Seattle for the kids who appeared in it. And there was a lot of hooting and excited laughter at first, seeing themselves on screen. But as the film drew to its close, sort of a pal fell over the group. And after the screening, one of the kids came up to the director, Martin Bell, and said, I'm really angry and I want to hit somebody and I don't know who to hit. That pretty much characterizes how everybody feels after this movie. The film premiered in the US on the 26th of October, 1984, and it played mostly to art house cinemas and small chains across the country. Its international rollout spanned several years, with some countries premiering it on television as late as 1989. I couldn't verify box office figures upon its initial release, but in their book Contemporary American Cinema, authors Linda Williams and Michael Hammond list Streetwise as the fifth highest grossing non-performance documentary of the 80s, uh, with a $1.8 million gross. Just for comparison purposes, the highest was Michael Moore's breakout 1989 documentary Roger and Me which grossed three times as much. Most critics were bowled over by the film and did their best to raise its profile. Uh, In a New York Times review, Janet Maslin wrote, it has the quality of a photo essay observing a number of homeless teenagers without structuring a narrative or otherwise commenting on what is seen. 
the shapelessness and the unacknowledged presence of the camera in what seemed to be small intimate moments would hurt the film if its interview footage were not so unmistakably authentic and at times so wrenching. Of particular note of reviews from Seattle critics, John Hartle called it one of the best movies anyone has ever made in the Northwest. Uh, William Arnold, who you mentioned in your introduction, wrote that it was as pointless as a trip to a terminal cancer ward. It seems a very, very ugly way of expressing his point of view. A uh, few critics found it overloaded with too many characters and incidents, but they were in the minority, and the film managed to nab a nomination for Best Documentary at the 1985 Academy Awards. Tiny and Kim were flown to Los Angeles to attend the ceremony, and apparently when the film lost, Tiny ripped her boutonniere from her tuxedo label and stomped on it. Perhaps the film's biggest proponent, as you mentioned, was Gene Siskel. He thought it was better than The Times of Harvey Milk, which was the winning documentary that year. He applauded the filmmakers for gaining unprecedented access to a shadow culture and said he could not recommend it more highly. You name the Hollywood movie and I'll show you seeing this film, it's better. Well, Streetwise won, uh, won an Academy Award nomination this year. It didn't win the Academy Award, but Harvey Milk beat it. And I'm telling you, this is better than Harvey Milk. It's one of the best films of 1985. It's now opening in theaters around the country. It finished on both his and Roger Ebert's top 10 lists that year. In 1988, Mary Ellen Mark published a collection of photographs as a companion piece to the film. Mark stayed in touch with Tiny and continued to photograph her over the years. In 1992, Bella and Mark made American Heart, a well-received narrative film inspired by the story of Dwayne and his father. A year later, ABC News ran an hour-long piece on Aaron Blackwell, who was by then 24. The segment is available to watch on YouTube. In 2013, a Facebook group was created to track down the nine kids featured in Streetwise, and they managed to find most of the kids. In 2016, the crowdfunded follow-up Tiny Life of Aaron Blackwell, which we've talked about, was released. And then in 2019, a newly restored version of Streetwise screened in select theatres and was ultimately released on Criterion and Blu-ray this year. According to UN sources, there are currently up to 150 million children living on the streets today. 150 million. And more coming with COVID. I think this is a foregone conclusion for both of us, but how many stars do you give uh, Streetwise? I give it five stars. It's very, very difficult to judge a film like this in kind of traditional terms, the way you would judge conventional films. It really is more like an experience. It's a documentation of very unique time and place, but of also a universal issue. And really what does make this film special is, is how intimate it is. I agree with you on the five stars. It's um, one of those films that you look at and you say, I'm so fortunate as a movie fan that this saw the light of day, that all of those people, Martin Bell, Cheryl McCall, Mary Ellen Mark, put in the time and effort to make this movie on a low budget that they didn't know was going to get rewarded to make such a special movie and for me to be able to watch it. I would say that this film has had a continued impact on my life since I first saw it. So thank you to all of the people involved with Streetwise, from the street kids to the filmmakers, everybody that was involved with it. Thank you to our listeners for joining us here today for our discussion of Streetwise. We'll get back to something far more superficial and frothy next time. (laughs) See you later.